Hey, this is Kevin Smith, and you're listening to Radio Brendo Man, the only radio that matters with the name Brendo Man in it. If you're not listening to it, just what in God's name are you listening to? I can give you some options, but that would defeat the purpose of the plug. Brendo Man. Welcome to another episode of Radio Brendo Man. I'm Brendan Creasy. This episode is an interview with Jason Colston. And if you're wondering who that is, Jason is a huge Star Wars collector um, of Star Wars toys. So we talk a lot about his collection. And um, we talk a lot about other nerdy things like board games and um, collecting toys and all kinds of stuff like that. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, not much else is going on. I hope you're all doing well. I hope this finds you well. And, um, and if you want to write into us, if you have anything you want to talk about, or if you have a, you know, a nostalgia detective's case or anything like that, um, radiobrendo at gmail.com, radiobrendoman at gmail.com or brendoman at gmail.com. Um, not radiobrendo at gmail.com. It's radiobrendoman at gmail. Or brendoman at gmail. Or... Well, you get it. You can hit us up at those. Or use the contact form at radiobrendo.com. I actually have radiobrendoman.com, but I haven't pointed it anywhere yet. I finally got it back. So that's good news. Um... Not much else is going on, so I'm going to get to the interview pretty quickly, but just be sure to go to RadioBrendo.com for all things this podcast. If you want to listen to old episodes, if you want to support us by going clicking on our Amazon banners, we also got Disc DreamHost discounts on Web DreamHost web hosting. You get $50 off if you click the DreamHost banner, and um, just, yeah, RadioBrendo.com is where all that stuff is at, and other than that... I think I will let us do the talking with um, my interview with Jason Colston. So here we are with that. All right, I am here with Jason Colston. Yes, sir. Any name? That's 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 it. Yes, sir. And you're a chef. Uh, what? Once upon a time. Yeah, I uh, spent uh, a lot of time in the food world kind of at a young age. Um, I got, I was lucky to get hooked up with, uh, restaurant jobs, like, like good restaurant jobs, you know, not like, uh, high school restaurant jobs, but like, you know, at the time, this was like early 90s, I guess. Um, I started working for a restaurant group called West Coast Productions. Uh, which had at the time like five or six pretty top shelf restaurants and I floated around with their catering company and they would move me around from restaurant to restaurant. And so, you know, like I was at the age of 16, you know, being introduced to all kinds of new foods, new techniques, you know, 
kitchen brigade staff, front of house staff, and it's like it was like love at first, love at first sight, you know. So what do you do now? Uh, now, <laughs> uh, a little of this, a little of that. Um, I don't cook. Let me just say about the restaurant world: it is the toughest job on the planet. Like yeah. work, working in a kitchen is. Uh, so physically exhausting and so taxing for such a long period of time that it's really not an old man's game anymore, right? Like at some point you just kind of, you either, you either become a restaurateur and you, you go that route or you just kind of retire out, you know, cause you, you can't keep up anymore. I mean, you're talking right. like 16, 18 hour days, six days a week, you know, and you have like, maybe Sunday or Monday to like sleep in and then, but you're still even at that point, you're thinking about menus and you're writing uh, stuff for staff or you're looking stuff up, you're placing orders with vendors. So there's like zero time off. So I stopped doing that and then I was in art for a while. So I started uh, like a fine art, a pop art printing company. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, it was cool. We did like, we worked with a lot of cool contemporary, um, like younger artists, like pop surrealists, like people that were doing like postmodern figurative surrealism. Um, and we did like, uh, we did artist skateboards, we did, um, like artist design t-shirts, and then we did like direct to wall, like artwork, like decal artwork, but like large, super large format, like indoor graffiti, stuff like that. It was really cool. But, uh, so I did that from like 2006 until our 2010 and we just kind of, uh, did that we just, we were hemorrhaging money because <laughs> we were using really expensive inks and really expensive materials. And so we just kind of let that one go. And now I just manage properties and play tabletop role playing games and run a weekly gaming group and nerd out. Um, we're sitting at your gaming table right now. It's a pretty impressive piece of equipment you got here. Yeah, this is, uh, we're sitting at, uh, a prophecy table. It's called the Prophecy. It's from a company out of Boston called Wormwood. Um, they're pretty big. Like, they're involved a lot with, like, Critical Role, uh, and with the tabletop role playing community in general. They really are excellent woodworkers. They make dice vaults. They make, uh, magnetic dice towers, which are super awesome. Their work and craftsmanship is just extraordinary. And this this gaming table, the Prophecy, was like a total dream come true for our gaming group. It looks really cool. So I see you got your gaming table. You also have a collection of figures and assorted things. So would you say yeah. your what's your primary area here? Is it gaming or is it collecting or is it? It's it's both. It's it, I mean. The gaming has kind of taken over, um, uh, the collecting. I don't collect actively anymore. My main area of collecting interest was, um, vintage Kenner Star Wars, which I got into really early. Like, even when I was in high school, um, like, around like 91, I started collecting vintage Star Wars toys, which were at the time not even very vintage. You know, they had only been off the shelves for like five or six years. How'd you get into it that early? Um, I don't, you know, a friend of mine said, uh, that his mom found a carded action figure that she forgot to give him for his birthday, like his eighth birthday or something like that. And I was like, what do you, like, what do you mean? Like there's a Star Wars action figure that's not opened? Like how is that even possible? And he goes, I'll bring it. So he, he brought 
over it was a, it was a Han Bespin on an Empire Strikes Back card, and I looked at it and it was like some like an explosion went off in my brain. Like I couldn't understand how this artifact existed, and I was like, you know, maybe there's more. Maybe other people didn't open their Star Wars stuff, and I can go buy it. And so. At that time, there's no internet, right? It's total pre-internet. Yeah, how there's, are you finding these? Like uh, in the recycler, you know, um, basically classified ads. People like around, like in Huntington Beach, there was this guy who had a garage full of vintage Star Wars toys boxed, and he would. It was almost like his little shop. Like you could just go. Like I would go there once a week and just see what he had and pick through his inventory. And there was a woman who I think it was in, she was in Fountain Valley, and she had like just boxes and boxes and boxes of carded figures she had bought you know two of everything one to for her son to play with and one to keep and she had everything you can imagine from the beginning of star wars 77 all the way to the the droids and ewoks line which was based on the animated series like circa 86 she had everything and she was just selling stuff for like 20 bucks a figure like no matter what like didn't matter the rare like she didn't have any idea about rarity or um you know card back value it was just like 20 bucks was 20 bucks any figure you want so i started buying then and then once the internet started rolling around there were some guys uh that put together this website called uh at the time it was called toys r gus it was run by gus lopez who's kind of a luminary figure in the collecting world and then it became the Star Wars Collector's Archive. And like once I found that site, that's like a deep dive because those guys were like into all kinds of like deep collecting, like prototype collecting. Like they would contact former Kenner employees and get like molds and, you know, um, test squeezes on action figures, first shots, you know, wax sculpts, the whole nine yards. And once I saw that stuff, again, it was like a, just like when I saw that first Han Bespin, when I started seeing prototypes, that my my brain exploded. Like I was like, not only can I collect the vintage stuff that was in the stores, but I can get pieces of ephemera like from the company, like um, how these toys were made and manufactured. Now you're owning like like a, an artifact, like a true piece of Star Wars toy history, and it was awesome. Like it, I, I was so immersed in it for so long, but it's just gotten so expensive because it's so mainstream now. Yeah. And there's so many collectors that are vying for so few pieces, especially the prototype world is, is to get a, a significant piece is so, so expensive now, like tens of thousands, like, you know, like $50,000 pieces I'm seeing now, you know, and even just the carded production stuff just got too expensive. So I sold a lot of my stuff off at a very good profit because um, I bought it so long ago. And I just kept like one section. So what you're seeing here in the shelf behind me is like a full set of carded Empire Strikes Back figures, um, none of which have an offer. So there's like some nerdy stuff with... Like, do you remember like the Kenner toys where it would like you'd always have like a little free mail away? Yeah. Right? Like it would be like save... Five proof of purchases and you get Admiral Akbar or the Emperor or Forlom or something. So the card backs that I have here in my collection are all offerless. So they offer like a full view of the original photographic artwork that Kenner used for the packaging. That's just my preference. Everybody's kind of niche about what they collect. Um, but this, that's my, that's kind of the end of my collection is that stuff. And then some of the prototypes from Strawberry Shortcake and. So you got some masks. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's all uh, full production in 1985 and 1986. That's almost the entire first run of uh, toys from the animated series. That was kind of that was the last toy line I officially played with as a kid. You know, like yeah. in school. You know, uh, I had mass toys. I did had you? The helicopter. Yeah, the, that's. Oh, you're right. The helicopter was uh, uh, Miles Mayhem's yeah. uh, main vehicle. Yeah, it transformed. It was. It was like a copter slash jet. Yeah. Right. Blue. Blue with like a red stripe. Yeah. Yeah. That's one piece I don't have. That and Rhino are the two pieces I don't have sealed. But all the you can see it's all in acrylic, so that's all uh, graded by a company uh, called. Uh, they're, it's AFA, so I mean, it's it's like a, you know, just like a comic grading company or okay. a baseball card grading company, but they s- exclusively just do vintage package toys. So, so they're all graded, sealed up, like forever in UV plastic. So, but yeah, the mask artwork is so amazing, right? I mean, just look at it; it's so colorful. Yeah, it looks really cool just yeah. to see those. Toys in their boxes. Yeah, let me get them all for you. Right, just to see these. It's, I mean, like this is my fifth. This is fifth grade in my hands. You know, for me. Yeah, Thunderhawk. That's that was the toy. That was the yeah, toy. The one, right? Like everybody wanted that that Camaro. Like I want. I wanted yeah. a Camaro. Like as a kid, I was like, that's the car I'm going to drive later. Pretty cool. So you're into toys. Yeah. And then you get into games or do you do the, like tabletop gaming, I mean? Yeah, how did that You know, it started with uh so I started playing Dungeons and Dragons like like a lot of kids in the eighties, like like elementary school aged with neighborhood kids. Um, I lived two doors down from the Mazza brothers and the, the three of us had characters and then their older brother Ralph was our DM. I don't even know if we were playing right. I, in hindsight, I don't think we were doing a very good job of following the rules. This was like AD&D, right? TSR, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And um, then as an adult, and then obviously I put that away and then, you know, life goes on and then I become an adult and then just at some point, like maybe like, 15 years ago, I was like, yeah, I kind of want to play Dungeons and Dragons again. Like, is that still around? Like, is anybody still doing that? And I reached out to a buddy of mine who played in high school and he's like, yeah, let's play. Let's just get the old system back out and get a gang together and start a new campaign. So we did. And it was like so much more satisfying as an adult to play a tabletop role playing game than as a kid. Cause as a kid, you know, get all the nuances. You know, you're not a very good role player, like in terms of interacting with the world and interacting with NPCs and putting voices on and creating narrative. Like that's not really like kids aren't as good as adults at it. So it was so much more fun than I had even remembered. So we started getting heavy into D and D, and then that just led to playing more independent tabletop games. Like because it's like you can't play D and D all the time, right? Because it takes like our sessions were like six to eight hours long. Yeah. Right. You're sitting around a table. That's not realistic for adults with busy schedules all the time. So to, you know, to kind of fill in the gaps, I started buying tabletop games, like independent games, like, you know, from 
like little publishers like well they're big now but like you know ILO games or um let's see small world was probably the game I would say my gateway game was small world from uh days of wonder that and uh ticket to ride those were like I played ticket to ride have you played it yeah it's it's such a good game it still holds up like even though it's I don't know it's like maybe 15 20 years old now at this point maybe not that old but it's it's just like it still holds up. It's a great gateway game for people who are like, you know, like their idea of board gaming is like Risk or, you know, Monopoly or like, you know, the game, you know, Trivial Pursuit, the games that we all grew up with in the 80s. Ticket to Ride is an awesome game to say like, hey, look, there's more to board gaming than what you what you remember. And then from there, it was just like an explosion. I have, I mean, you can see behind you, I've got a few hundred box titles in um in these shelves here and then i've got crates or not crates but like just tubs on tubs on tubs in the garage of like overflow games so it's kind of it's like a passion obsession so what are some of your go-to games besides dungeons and dragons um well, we have, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is also a great gateway for role-playing gaming. There's so right. many role-playing gaming systems out there. I mean, we played, it's, after we got into D&D, it was like, people were running other stuff too. And like my buddy, John, he's a teacher. He, um, he introduced us to, let's see, like Dungeon World, which was developed, uh, by Adam Coble, who is at Skinny Ghost on Twitter. He's an awesome DM. He does a lot of stuff for wizards, um, and he was co-author of what a lot of people consider one of the the best like fantasy role playing systems out there, including D anD. d But then we played like a horror systems. There's a horror system called Dread, which, if you can believe it, it's uh it's based on it uses a Jenga tower <laughs> to adjudicate the actions. So you're in like a horror scenario, and if you want to do something like you know take an action as a character, you have to pull a tile from the Jenga tower and if you knock it over your character suffers some horrible terrible death right so it's great for like horror role playing gaming um there's a professional wrestling rpg oh yeah is, it's so awesome i'm a, I'm a wrestling fanatic so yeah. i'm always looking for cool wrestling stuff what's the wrestling rpg i don't remember the name of it um but we had we uh, john came over and we were going to we we actually didn't get to kick it off cuz he got too busy but we did What's commonly known as session zero, where you get your players around the table and you all decide, you know, what kind of character you're going to play and how everybody's going to interact with each other. So we sat around for like three hours, like coming up with these preposterous, um, wrestling identities. Um, and we, we set it, the, it was set in the late 1970s in the, um, uh, in the mid south, right? When you like when wrestling had, all the like their little territories. Yeah. So we set ours in Memphis. So at the time, uh, this is like when Jerry Lawler was was wrestling, and with like uh, uh, the honk, uh, let's see, Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart was his manager. Right. And so we so that we had it set, kind of set aside. So those would be NPCs in our world, basically that we could interact with. And I had I came up with this heel uh, called Kid Frisco, who um, was like hailed from California, from San Francisco, and was like a, a, a queer wrestler. And so in the South, like in the 70s, you know, it was designed, he was designed to be an antagonist basically to, to the, to the good guys. Yeah. 
And then I had a manager who was just this blathering, blowhard, coked up maniac. It was really, really funny, hilarious characters. They were, they were fantastic. It was really going to be awesome, but we just never got, we never got to session one because of some schedule challenges, but yeah, there's so many role playing. There's, um, we played this, uh, oh, GURPS is another one. GURPS is like an open system. Yeah. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, my friend was way into it. Yeah, yeah, it's fun cause like, it doesn't follow, it's not like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons takes place like in a fantasy setting, right? There's wizards, there's elves, etc. GURPS is like whatever you wanna do. You wanna, you know, you wanna be bank robbers? Knock yourself out. Like, you wanna play like in an alternate reality where, you know, mechs, uh, are part of everyday life. That's fine too. We, we are, the one that we played, we played for a long time. We played like, uh, maybe over a three year period. It was uh, a group of bounty hunters, um, that were, and we were set in late 1870s Arizona during, uh, near the border during the, like, uh, the, uh, Apache Mexican wars. And this is like post civil war. So one of our characters was a, like a former um, Union soldier, and like you know, I played uh, like a kind of like a paladin, like a religious, like a righteous religious, you know, bounty hunter. Um, and that was fantastic. We had like it was like run, it was like it's like Westworld, right? It's like you're playing inside of Westworld, but you're playing at the table with pencil and paper and your imagination and your storytelling. And the stories, you know, you're in charge of it, right? So you're writing these broad narratives and breathing life into these characters and the way they interact with each other becomes, it becomes totally real to you, you know, or to me, you know, I had elaborate backstory. It was awesome. We played one, this one groups campaign where we played a group of kids, like fifth graders on a, on a, a field trip gone awry where like there were no adults around like we were like stuck in the icy winter and it's the 80s so no cell phones right so like there's no technology really to get you out of the situation so you have to uh, adventure your way through and like solve these puzzles and and then try to make it out alive it was like uh, this kind of like horror uh just like a let's see what was it what was it all there was like a Sorry, I'm, I'm referencing my wife. She's, she was part, she was one of the players in that campaign. Oh, I know what it was. We got the, we, the kids had to take over the bus and then, um, they slid off the road and like off an icy patch and crashed into a forest, but the forest was totally haunted with like these ancient, um, demons that were trying to like, you know, uh, come back to earth. And so you're a group of kids, right? And you're, so you're in this horror scenario and it's, it was very kind of like, this is like before Stranger Things, you know, came out. So, but you know, that kind of kids on bikes adventure, you know, where yeah. it's just like, you got to get out and you have like no technology except Who for your Walkman. Uh, my buddy John wrote the story. That's cool. Yeah. He wrote the story and then we used the GURP system, uh, to adjudicate all the actions. So there are rules about like, you know, fighting or, you know, having the will or the wisdom to notice things and, you know, rolling dice to find out if you're successful at certain activities or actions that you want to do. Like driving the bus, for example, we, had some failures. That's why we ended up sliding off the road into the, into the forest. But the, but the GM has to kind of roll with those punches, right? Cause he doesn't know what the outcomes or even what actions his players are going to take. So John, as our GM, he's like a resident guy. He's very good at like 
being able to adapt the story to like whatever right. twists and turns come, you know, you kind of have to think on your feet as a GM or a DM. You, yeah. I've done, I DM for, um, Dungeon Dragons and it's a lot of improv. Yeah. Total improv. Cause you're, you have a plan, right? You're like, okay, they've got to go through this. They got to get to this tavern, talk with this person, go do a thing. But the players always have different ideas. They're like, we don't want to do that. We want to do something totally different. We want to, we want to take a different route. First of all, we want to get horses, you know, so everything changes and you just have to constantly be on your feet. So. Yeah. That's what I like about it. Cause it's yeah. like you're designing a game in real time. Yeah. Totally. And as somebody that I dreamed about being a game designer when I was a kid, like getting to really? do that as a DM, it's like you're getting to fulfill that dream of making a world. Yeah. Totally. I mean, when I, I've DM'd as well, I, I don't have the sort of improv skills that John has or uh, Dean is our other DM. Those guys are really good at, um, coming up with new stuff on the fly, um, and reacting to changing conditions. I, I'm more of a, a module guy. Like I, I tend to want to follow, yeah, like the, the writ, the pre-written stuff. You know, I can, I can, improv around the the pre-written stuff but like i don't come up with stuff from scratch like john is the one that wrote that horror kit campaign for the kids and he's the one that wrote the 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 wrestling uh campaign he's the one that wrote the wild the you know the wild west groups campaign so all that was like his original content that he's like coming up with from scratch that's awesome um Speaking of wrestling, you yeah. mentioned you were you you were familiar with wrestling. Yeah, I grew up with my dad is from Charleston, grew up with South Southern yeah. wrestling. Yeah, well, I, we lived there for a little while uh, when I was a kid. Um, you know, uh, my grandpa, my dad's dad, had a, a, a he had like four or five jewelry shops um, in in Charleston, and he he was he had taken ill and so he had asked my dad who was we were all living here in southern california at the time he had asked my dad to come back and like help him you know run him until he could figure out what That's he wanted a to big do transition going Huge. from southern california to yeah i was Charleston. in i was in first i was like 1980 i was like in kindergarten first grade um so i was i mean i'm a kid i use roll with the punches you're yeah. like whatever i go wherever but it was that was the first time i ever really saw wrestling because my dad was into it and Wrestling at that time, it was still kind of regional. Did you go to shows? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were small. Like, I mean, I went to tons of WWF shows when we moved back, but like, when we were going to shows in South Carolina, they were like, I mean, I, my memory is fuzzy on it, cause I was so young, but I remember them being more like at high schools. Okay. Like in high school gyms. Yeah. You know, not auditoriums. You're not, they're not, they weren't playing arenas. This is like pre-WWF. Yeah. And they're low, they're, it's, it's regional. I go to a local. lot of local shows here, so. Yeah. I'm familiar with it, like Legion Halls and things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably what it was. Legion Halls, uh, maybe like local school civic gyms. centers, school gyms. Yeah. That's what I remember. I remember it being, you know, it's like my memory of wrestling, of seeing it live in South Carolina is, more like snapshots in my brain. Yeah. You know, like I don't, I can't remember like seeing full matches or understanding like the storylines of the, of the wrestlers really. I mostly just remember like the feeling of being there and the, the like snapshot images of like, especially I remember like there, I just, for some reason I really remember this old woman who was 
constantly screaming at this heel <laughs> and she was getting really riled up and I was like, God, this guy must be terrible. Like, why does this woman hate this guy so much? And then we, we only were in South Carolina for like two years, we moved back to, uh, Southern California. And then that's like when Vince McMahon's deal started really popping off. Yeah. Like when he got his cable deals early on and we were seeing shows all the time, like pretty much what, like almost weekly. Wow. It seemed like they were, cause they were at the Anaheim Convention Center and the LA Forum and they were constantly rotating, uh, match schedules through those two venues and it just seems like we were always going to so matches. You saw, you saw like, this like Hulk Hogan era? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Full, yeah, even pre Hulk Hogan, like even like when he was like just coming up. Um, but yeah, like, you know, my favorites at the time were like Junkyard Dog, Superfly Jimmy Snooker, um, at the time, I remember, cause this is like Cold War, this is like Reagan era at this yeah. point almost, so like Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheet get together, right? And they are just like the antithesis of the enemy right. of the state, right? And I had a, I had a, be like LJN at that time was, was, they were making the action figures. Yeah, the right? big ones. The, the big, big ones, big like the big hard rubber, yeah. like they were like non-articulated solid rubber cast. And I, I remember I had an Iron Sheet and I had like, put a shoelace around it like a noose and like when he w- walked out like I, I was on the edge and I was like taunting him with it you know like to, like death to the Iron Sheik which is you know in hindsight totally racist bullshit but right. at the time it just seemed like oh yeah this guy is a terrible human being bad like guy. yeah he's bad guys singing the Iranian national anthem you know to taunt America uh right I was like I think it was like I was like third grade i think it was nine maybe at that by that point but uh yeah we saw so many matches man there was this one time do you remember when uh do you remember the fabulous moolah yeah do you remember when cindy lopper became her manager yeah for a little period well I, we went to the anti convention center and saw uh i don't remember who else was on the card but i but i remember the fabulous moolah and i remember uh cindy lopper being like ejected from the arena or like or she she was like kicked out by the I don't even know how that's possible There's, but like some, for some reason she did something that was so upsetting to the ref that like he ordered her to get like the hell out of Dodge and then we went to the LA Forum and we saw like the same exact match like the same sequence of events and the same story right. and I remember thinking as a kid like what like what's going on you know cuz at the time <laughs> it was still real to me yeah, at that yeah, time yeah. like I I didn't understand that, that that there were scripts involved yeah and when I saw the same thing twice it was like it was a little disheartening. Like, it was like disheartening or like, like I, like they pulled back the, the, curtain. the curtain a little bit and I was like, okay, like I'm starting to understand now what's going on just a little bit. I did, it did not lessen my love of wrestling at all, but it was definitely an eye opener. So what are, um, what are, what's like the most valuable Star Wars collectible you've had your hands on? Um, well, I never owned it, but I did have my hands on it. Um, there was uh, uh, this guy, Tom Derby, who used to run a shop called Cloud City Collectibles. Uh, he w- had the most high-end inventory of anybody at that time. And uh, a, ro- uh, a rocket-firing Boba Fett prototype on the card, on a card, on a twenty-one back card, 
which was used at by Kenner. They just made one. It was just like a mock-up. Like it was, you know, it's a hand-cut bubble. It's hand-glued to the card. The figure's a prototype. The card back is a proof card. And they just made one for as a sales sample for the uh, like the 1980 New York Toy Fair. And there's some like there's some photographic evidence that it existed, but nobody knew where it was, and it showed up one day. How um, does those things show up? Like who has these? <laughs> These guys that are like the hardcore collectors, these guys that are, you know, reaching out to employees and, uh, you know, live in the Cincinnati area, you know, like, cause that's where Kenner was based out of Cincinnati. They're right. like, these guys are like the Indiana Jones of toys, <laughs> you know, they are totally, totally dedicated to unearthing, um, rare, weird, unproduced toys, and also, you know, adding value to the community at large by showing this stuff off, right? It's like, look, this exists. Like, this is what we found, and now we know, you know, how they did it and why they did it, and it's like... They get so into it. That that website, what's the website that you talk about? The Star, Star Wars, Wars Collector's Archive? Yeah, like, I went on there, and they were there was like a 10-page article just about s- solo cups. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, like these guys, I, they're like, they're, they're so, they're archivists, right? These guys, yeah. right? And, and so they're, they're not just collecting, you know, to put their, to put these items into a black hole collection. They're collecting and spreading information, right? Like, so the information becomes part of, you know, there's almost like a, a currency involved with having, you know, the knowledge of like where this stuff comes from and how it came to be. So that piece was like that, that rocket firing Boba Fett mock-up. I think it, the last time it sold, it was like 125,000, maybe something to net zone. You no, know, that's like the, the holy grail. If, even a loose one now sells for like 35K. Have you, you know? seen one? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I never had one. It was never like my, my focus, but there are a lot out there. Uh, there's quite a few that exist. I mean, Do you a have lot of prototypes. Is, I had some prototypes. Yeah, I sold them all off. Like I used to have like a lot of um the the coin prototypes. So when you know in 1985, in sort of a last ditch effort to keep the Star Wars line going because there are no no more movies, right? Right. Interest is waning. Product is starting to sit, and so Kenner had like one last breath of of life into the Star Wars line. They introduced this Power of the Force card back. Which um, included like a special collector's coin for each figure, so it was like it, they tried to use the coin as a premium to get people to to, to buy the figures again. It, it, that was kind of it never really worked out, and they just kind of sat on the shelf, and that was the end of the the original line. But those coins, um, there was a huge, huge find of the prototypes related to those coins, and so the coins are like they're the size of like silver dollars, maybe you know. But the prototypes showed up and they were like the original wax sculpts and the casts and they were like, like a frisbee in diameter. Wow, like they were, they were super large, like large. Cool. Yeah, cause they had to sculpt, it's a coin, right? So they have to sculpt it big and then shrink it down. Cause you can't, you know, to try to capture all that detail. That's the way they did it. And so, um, like this, that's Ron Salvatore and, um, I think it was Todd Chamberlain and Chris Georgiulius, these guys who are like, you know, uh, editors for the archive. They unearthed, they basically got in touch with the original company that was contracted by Kenner to manufacture these coins for him. And all of that original prototype material was just 
in one giant find. Like they they had like it was, in there. it was just yeah, it was just all like in boxes. And it was like for every coin there was a, a soft copy, a hard copy, and then some of them didn't make it because they they were so brittle and cracked. Or they were destroyed in in the molding or in the uh, in the manufacturing process, but even some of the original like wax sculpts. So imagine like a, a big platter of wax, like where somebody actually sculpted the de- the relief of a coin. And I had a, a ton of them. Like I had like I had a whole run of Uncle Gundy from the Droids cartoon. Um, then I had uh, I had a whole run of the Imperial Commander from the ESB line. Um, oh, I can't remember what other characters I had. So I had a bunch of those. I sold all those off. I had a, a lot of the uh, the packaging and uh, uh, like proof material from the Power of the Force line, um, including like alternate logos, like that they were f- like when the, before they landed on the Power of the Force logo that went to packaging. They mocked up like twenty or thirty panels of different kinds of logo concepts, and I had a couple of those. Which again, I sold, um, and then I had a lot of st- a lot of prototype material from um, Brazil. Like so, Glasslight is a company that got the last license to produce uh, toys from the Star Wars line. So in Brazil, in the late in the late eighties, when everybody in America had already forgotten about Star Wars, Brazil was still hot for it. So yeah. they got the license from Kenner uh, and Luke and LFL to produce Star Wars toys. In Brazil, under the Glasslight toy line, and my so buddy the toys that never came out here. They were only in Brazil. The packaging's totally different, totally weird. Um, it used the Power of the Force logo, but then it used a bunch of like um, like movie panel stills, like on the front of the package, as opposed to like kind of the classic packaging that you think of for Kenner. This was more like movie driven, yeah. or like yeah, it was really weird. Uh, but my buddy Shane. Uh, Shane Turgeon, who runs uh, a collectible, uh, uh, he has it's actually it's a super rad shop up in Edmonton, uh, Ontario. It's uh, he's got collectibles, comics, vintage toys, and um, and a tattoo studio. Wow. So it's all like all in one shot. So and he he was like really aggressive uh, with trying to get down to Brazil and figure out what was going on with Glasslight and kind of unearth some of the prototypes from down there. So he's, he's down there like literally in Brazil, like talking with the original, just go down there. Yeah. Just go down there and talk, talk to people, talk to people who worked at the factory, unearth stuff. He, he unearthed like the original photo separation sheets for the card back. So I have a set of those actually do. So I have a set of those and there were some packaging proofs that showed up like for, they, like the X-wing, they call it the ASA-X. I don't know if like if ASA is like Portuguese for wing. I'm not sure, mm. but they had the ASA-X. They had a Tie Interceptor proof. Um, they had a, a Tie Fighter proof, and these were boxes and artwork that never were released in the United States. So they were beautiful. Um, and then I had a big like uh, store display prototype proof that was pr- like a just a color proof basically. For like a print test for a store display uh, promotion they had down there, and I had all of the packaged guarded figures, all the packaged box stuff, and then there was this collector out of England um, whose name eludes me now, but he was really interested in Glasslight. And he knew I had all that stuff, so he reached out to me and he was like, "I'll buy everything from you, like everything that you have." I was like, "Okay," so I kind of regret it because it's actually gone up in value since then, but at the time. I was was I definitely needed the money and he came through like right at the right moment. So 
That's cool. And then you go to conventions? Yeah. Um, you, you went to like some of the early celebrations? Yeah. Yeah. I went to all the celebrations up to, uh, I think, so I went to uh, two, three, and four. Those were in Indianapolis. I missed one. That one was in Denver. Um, I missed it, but I, that one was, I, I heard it was kind of, I heard it was kind of a shit show. It was like not well organized. It was the, the, with most early cons. It was like the first Star Wars celebration. Yeah. And I don't think they, they were just trying to figure stuff out. So I don't even think they had a real organized plan. Plus the weather was terrible. And I think it was like, you know, a lot of this, even some of the cons uh, took place outside of a building. So there was like, you know, oh, rain problems. I don't remember exactly, but I remember it was not good. But I did go to celebration two, three, and four in Indianapolis. And then I didn't make the one that was out in Orlando, but then it came back to the West Coast. It, came, it went to the LA Convention Center and then the Anaheim Convention Center. So I went to both those. Um, and those are rad. And, because like, you know, the Star Wars collecting community, it's a total brotherhood, right? And like all these guys, I, I know that I've known them for like 20 years, you know, from collecting. And they are some of the closest friends I have. And so a lot of people go to the Star Wars conventions and they want to do the, you know, they want to do the panels, you know, with about the movie and they want to like see the artwork and the costumes from the movie. All we wanted to do was just get together and shoot the breeze about toys. So that was our con. It was really like, yeah, there's a big Star Wars convention happening, but we're all just hanging out together and catching up and reminiscing and swapping stories. Collectors love nothing better than to swap collecting stories, especially fines. Like when someone has a big fine, yeah, that's always like, you know, you hang on every word, right? So to us, the conventions were more like reunions really than cons. But, you know, for our art business, we also did Comic-Con at, um, at, in San Diego every year for like three years. When did you years. start going to the... 2006 okay. was the first one I ever went to. Mine was 05. Yeah, okay. So we were right there, like right in that same pocket. That was right when it was, that was like the tipping point. That's when it got, well, 06, 06 was, okay. was okay, and then 07, 07 was, was forget nuts. about right? it. Right? Totally. Holy moly. It was like, and, and like even maneuvering through yeah. the halls was like, became a challenge unto itself. Yeah. Like that was, could, that was what, that's like when Comic Con became what it is. Now. Yeah, right. It became a cultural force. Yeah. Like in 06, 07. Hall H happened. Hall H. Yeah, my buddy, uh, Aaron has a podcast called Hall H, as a matter okay. of fact, where, uh, he's been doing that for like, uh, four years now, I think. Five years. Yeah, Aaron Naboos. Great podcast. Um, but yeah, that's when everything exploded. And we were there for art. Like we weren't there for the toys or the media or the movies. Um, we, I was working with a lot of artists that were showcasing there. So I was always like in, you know, hopping from booth to booth, helping different artists and signing artists too. Like that's where I would find a lot of new artists. Like if you go to like artist row, yeah, you know, you just like, I, I knew what product I was making at the time and I knew what kind of imagery worked best for that product. And so if I saw a new artist that whose work fit with our product line, I would immediately pitch them like just right on the show floor and try to sign them to some content deal. So yeah, that was fun. And then WonderCon is pretty cool. Uh, it's in Anaheim. It's gotten way bigger. Yeah, it's gotten pretty big. It's gotten really big. And then my buddy, uh, Ben Goretzky, he has a, uh, a little toy company called 3d retro. It's not little, but, um, he started designer con or used, it's called decon now. 
Uh, Decon. Decon, yeah, it's in Pasadena. Or actually, I think he's he's moved it to Anaheim. I think this year. Uh, it started like we were one of the original vendors. Like I think it was it was like in a in like a hotel meeting room. Basically, <laughs> there were like fourteen vendors, maybe, and Popcling, which was a company I had uh, selling art skateboards, etc., was one of the first vendors there, along with like Monkey King was there. Um, uh, I can't even remember that first run of vendors, but that show started like in one room and then it, it grew to the Pasadena Convention Center and now it's moving to the Anaheim Convention Center. So that one got huge in a period of like 10 years. And then, uh, uh, the one, uh, Gen Con is the biggest, uh, I was gonna say, have you go, do you go to any gaming conventions? Yeah, I, Gen Con is the big one. That's once annually. It's in Indianapolis, but, in the first year, we had reservations to go and tickets to the show, the whole nine yards. And then at that time, it was Governor Mike Pence had passed that RFRA. Oh, yeah. And uh, we thought it was like, that was too much for us, you know, to like, you know, he had stampeded so hard on LGBTQ rights right. that we basically boycotted the state. And so I called the con and I was like, like the Gen Con organizers. And they were taking a lot of heat too, because they were being urged by gamers to like dump Indianapolis or you yeah. know dump Indiana and then move to a, a state that's you know more inclusive. But they had they're on contract to like 2022. Yeah, is what they told they told me that they were on contract or because I called I was like hey I, you know I have tickets but I'm not coming you know I don't like this whole RFRA thing I think you guys should consider. Because gaming, you know, the one thing about the tabletop gaming community is inclusivity is like everything. That's what makes it what it is. Yeah, it's almost like the opposite of like the Gamergate stuff. Like, there are so many talented um, artists, and uh, it's so inclusive for women, queer, transgender, everybody. Like, even D and D has straight up in the rule set. Like, you can be, you know, non-binary. Right. Your character doesn't have to conform to gender norms, right? So it's, it's everybody in the gaming community was like, "Hey, Gen Con, you gotta you gotta get out of Indiana. <laughs> you gotta get out of Indiana. Go anywhere, like go to Vegas or Colorado, anywhere." So unfortunately, I've never been to Gen Con because the first year I ever wanted to go was the year that that law that bill passed, and and they haven't done anything. They're still there. It's still in Indian, it's still in Indianapolis. So we. uh we're just like not in that. We're not in the gaming con circuit, right? Well, that's too bad. I know it is too bad because I really want to go to Gen Con, but like, have I you just, thought about going to like some other gaming? Computer? Yeah, there's there's at the time when we first started wanting to get into it. There's well, the big one, the the world's biggest one is in Essen. Germany. Yeah, I know somebody that went to that. Yeah, that one is like. That's the Mecca, right? That's, yeah. that is the big, biggest one on the, on the planet. That's where By all far. the games are. Yeah, well, German, you know, what we, Euro like, games. Yeah, Westerners are just kind of figuring out, like in the United States, tabletop gaming is a relatively new hobby, but Germans have been into tabletop gaming since, you know, the 60s and 70s. And a lot of the, some of the very best games and game designers come straight out of Germany. You know, there's the, the, 
Germany is also the home of the Spiel der Jahr, right? That's the Game of the Year award. Yeah. It's like the Academy Award for Best Picture, basically. They they designate now the categories are a little bigger, so they have like strategy gaming, strategy game of the year, game of the year, and uh, children's game of the year. And we just picked up last year's. It's called the Kinder Spiel der Jahr, which is the kids' game of the year. It's this uh, press your luck potion brewing game called the Quacks of Quendlinburg. Uh, which is awesome. They call it, it's supposed to be a kid's game, but it's pretty high strategy. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I guess if you're a German kid, it's, it's in your, it's in your wheelhouse, but, uh, for us, it's one of our favorite new games. But, uh, there's other, there are other ones too, like BGG, you know, like the Board Game Geek has their own con now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I think it's I an, I think it's an awesome. Is a cool site. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's, it's like if you need, we use it all the time for errata, right? Like yeah. sometimes like you just, there's like a weird rule or you can't figure out when like, you know, a card trumps the core rules or what the conditions are for certain things to activate. And always you can get the answer within like two seconds. You just punch up the, the forums and they've got like people there. Usually the people that design the game yeah. are on there, like helping to like explain a rule. So that is like, yeah, I got into Gloomhaven, mm-hmm. and I know he's really That's involved on the board game geek, and he he released like some like scenarios over the board game geek forums, yeah. and like did some cool stuff like that. The Gloomhaven's awesome. Did you like it? I haven't been able to play it really uh, yet. It's a big, big game. It's huge. Yeah, it's a, that's a I, like just the box is just the box. The is, box is terrifying. <laughs> I've got the box open and I've been playing with some of the stuff, but that's pretty much as far as I've gotten. Yeah, the components are great. The minis, like, yeah, it's super awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to they're coming out with a. The other game I'm coming out excited for is they're coming out with a Trogdor game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Homestar Runner, mm-hmm. and it's coming out really soon. And I've been, they've been, they've been really slowly showing off the like the like components, all the pieces, and all yeah. the stuff. And I don't know, I'm a huge Homestar Runner fan, and so I'm just really excited that there's a new Homestar Runner thing. That's great, and it looks like a fun game. Yeah, yeah. Some of those big box games are they can be intimidating. Like Twilight Imperium is another one of those. Like you know, I guess you could call those like. Epic class games. When you know? they sell a hundred dollar box for the box <laughs> to put right. stuff in. Yes. That's when you know. That's when you know. Yeah, when Broken Token has like an eighty dollar custom insert. <laughs> that's a big game. Yeah. That, so, that we played this game two weeks ago, a really big one. It was a Kickstarter that my buddy bought, my buddy Chris. He it was called um Vindication and it was really, really beautiful game to play. But it, again, it was one of those like Huge box games that I think he must have paid a fortune for. I didn't ask him. I didn't want to be rude, but it looked just the components. You know, the coins were all like heavy. Yeah. You know, like brass coins. The marker, the character markers. You know, the the little wooden cubes. Everything just had a beautiful feel to it. That game was awesome. Um, we just got we just picked up that Lord of the Rings game, the Journeys Through Middle Earth from Fantasy Flight, which uses an app. To control the world. Oh, that's cool. so. Like, so a companion app controls the you know your encounters, um, how you're like how and where you're traveling, and the narrative for the story because it's like a campaign based game. So it starts yeah. with you know chapter one and then you like move through it, and then the players um, 
work cooperatively as a fellowship, essentially, to, you know, maneuver through the world while the app throws, you know, uh, encounters and roadblocks at you. So... That one we have. Cool. We so I just got like the DM. The, the app is the DM. Yeah, Fantasy Flight got really good at it. I mean, Fantasy Flight. Didn't they like Mansions of Madness? Mansions or? of Madness is a total yeah. precursor. Like, like they took what they did with Mansions of Madness, which I have, which I love. Great game, especially if you're, into, I, uh, if you're into Lovecraft. Like, it's awesome. And the app runs the the app yeah. runs the mansion, right? So they took what they did there with Mansions of Madness, and then. You know, improved a little bit, changed some stuff, obviously, and then now you've got like a terrain-based map game that that's set in Eriador, essentially in Middle Earth. So, what are some other games that you would recommend to people trying to get into gaming? Um, there's a game out right now that I think is going to be probably the game of the year uh, called Wingspan, where players control an aviary. Um, and then you win by filling the aviary with birds, and then you know the birds have actions that they can do. Um, it's a resource management game, it's like a worker placement type thing. That game is stunningly beautiful to play. Um, even the Audubon Society was like, "Hey, this game's awesome!" <laughs> like because it's like a legit uh, birding game. You know, like the the artwork for the bird cards alone is worth the admission price. I think one of the all-time classics that we always go to is Dead of Winter from Plat Hat Games. That was designed by uh, Isaac Vega. Two designers. I forget the other designer. That is like a it's a post-apocalyptic, you know, zombie game where players play cooperatively. Um, it, it, they basically it's like uh, The Walking Dead. You've got like you know, your core group and you're, you're in a warehouse essentially, but all the resources are outside the warehouse. So you've got to like go out, deal with zombies, go to the police station, try to find weapons. And you're basically just trying to survive, but it's got this great betrayer mechanic. So at the beginning, everybody has a secret objective card and that objective will tell you whether or not you win because it's cooperative, but you still have to meet your objectives. Like hoarding food, for example, might be your thing or hoarding medicine or, you know, having a lot of gasoline and weapons might be your private objective. But another private objective might be that you just want everybody to die, right? Like, because you're the betrayer. Like, you don't like being at the colony. You don't like the other colonists. And so you're secretly working to uh, ruin the game, essentially. <laughs> but, you know, but you're trying to do it in secret because if you're found out, you can be voted out and then... That's it's all. It's a whole nother scenario. So it's this very uh, compelling game because everybody's on edge at all times, wondering, "Hey, are you trying to screw me here? Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this thing? Like, why are you not doing what we're suggesting?" You know. So there's a lot of paranoia, a lot of table chatter, and the theme is fantastic. And the little miniatures and the characters—they're awesome. So Dead of Winter, a, a, a thousand percent, I recommend it. Um, if you're into miniatures uh, or like uh, you know dudes on a map game, uh, there's a title called Blood Rage. I can't see it. I might have put it away. Oh yeah, there it is. Blood Rage. Blood Rage is like it's, it's set in um, it's like a Nordic tribal warfare game, like area control. And then at the end of each round, you know, like there's like a Ragnarok phase where you know, entire sections of the map are destroyed and then your heroes go to Valhalla and 
you get points even for you know glorious victory and death. It's really really cool. The theme is fantastic. I have to ask, is that a new Fireball Island? Yeah, yeah, that's from a. It's a company called Restoration Games, and we they, yeah, love Fireball Island yeah. here, Radio Brando Man. We we. That's a brand new one. So they okay. just released it. It was through Kickstarter. Um, it's That's cool. the vacuum molded pieces are you know much better than the original. It comes with little miniatures. Um, they're redoing uh, another game right now. They're they're getting ready to do. Do you remember that? Uh, it was like an electronic game from Milton Bradley called The Dark Tower. Yeah. Do you remember that? They're, I think that's the one they're, they're working on next. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. So they take those kinds of games, like you know, classics from your childhood that you love that haven't been paid attention to in a long time. Fireball Island was like pretty collectible for a while. Oh yeah, like, it's that's you the thing. Get you get a copy. It's like that's, that was why we had a whole hard time because I wanted to play Fireball Island and. Phil, my old co-host, he found his, luckily, but we were, like, thinking about trying to buy one, but it's like... You gotta go to eBay. It's a, it's a lot of money. Right, right, because... And to get a complete P with right, all the pieces... Right. And, and, and like, you can get open box, maybe, with, like, missing some of the fireballs and, like... Right. But, like, to get... That's, like, I... As a, I had two, I had two games that I completed as an adult that I found and went and re, rebought. <laughs> and those were two, two ones of, um, was the old Ghostbusters RPG. Uh, I don't remember that it's one. It's a D6 game. Oh. And it, it costs, the reason why it's valuable is there's a Ghostbusters, a no, the only reason why it's worth anything, cause you can get, you can get, you can go to Board Game Geek and get the, like you can all get PDFs. all the, all the PDFs, but there's a, there's a, there's a, Die with D6, and one of the is the no ghost logo on the oh. D6, and that die is worth like right. that's where it's worth like all the money, and and then and then and so I but I was crazy I spent like a hundred bucks and paid for it for that. It's really, pretty for much the, for the, for the D6. D6 that's in awesome. the box yeah and then and you then play as ghost but you play as the, you get to, the you, get, you can pick you can either be a ghostbuster like a, it comes with you can it comes with the cards for like you Bing, can be Bing, Bing, and, but you can also make your own ghostbuster team right. and and then you start your own ghostbusters franchise you control that's the franchise great. you control the business level of your franchise oh, i want to play that it's a lot of fun that sounds awesome and it's also kind of a detective game because you start off you just go into these situations where it's like there might be a ghost or it could just be like just some like crazy person doing crazy stuff. Right, right. Like, it's these ghost situations where you're yeah. trying to figure out what's going on. And it's very open-ended. So, like, there's multiple ways to win. Right. It's pretty cool. That sounds great. And they released a ton of modules for it, too. I can't believe... Who, do you know who published it? Um, Yeah, it's... uh, They released a bunch of stuff. Crap, I forgot what it's called. My own, I, I, I don't remember I anything outside of TSR they released, during that era. They released a bunch of, they, they, they were, the company that released it, they were famous for their D6 games. Okay, yeah. And I think they did Star Wars. Is it a Steve Jackson game? No. No? It's not. It's, I forgot. Yeah. But, oh, West End? West End, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. West End did the Star Wars RPG, the original yeah. one. So that's, that's, um, yeah, West End games. Yeah, I forgot about that one. That's awesome. I can't believe I didn't know that one. I feel like, you know, I, <laughs> like I kind of, Pat myself on the shoulder for knowing a little bit about the history of RPGs. And then the other RPG that I that, that got me into board gaming, period, that I have a full set of complete is Hero Quest. Oh, right. Because that was the, um, I I what they did was so genius was getting they they made a 
board game RPG, but like it was very, it was like D and D light. Yeah. And it got, it got, that's what got me sucked into that whole world. My dad used it to get us into, cause my dad was a, um, what are the games called? They're war games. They're like Avalon Hill. Mm. And like, these are like these really complicated, crazy, and he didn't know how to get us into them. And then Hero Quest came along and he's like, I think I can get him to play this. <laughs> and then he can, then he's like, he's like, if you like this, I got these games right. and I kind of like it. So then, and then we started playing those Avalon Hill games, which those games are very, Oh, that's like military? Yeah, military like, war games, strategy games. Like moving troops around yeah. the war and stuff like that. And, but then they also, but also they had some other really interesting ones. Like he had this one called Yellowstone where you're a bear and you're like, and you're trying to like, how we have to live in, in, right. in Yellowstone Park. And you play, you play as you the play bear. as an animal. That's awesome. And then you could be in a different. What years? This is the 80s? This is in the 80s. Wow, man. Crazy. And then we had some of those big, um, I think it was Milton Bradley made some big, they had like it's a big war games, Axis and Allies, uh-huh, and yeah, yeah, Shogun, yeah. and we had those. That's cool. I was all about those. But Finding Hero Quest was a big deal for me. But again, it's like to get a complete set with everything in it, it's not, you're paying a lot of money. Yeah. And you're paying for like, it comes down to like one or two parts that are the ones that are... You're really paying for the collectability of the item more than the game ability of the item, right? You know. Do you have anything else like that that you're like f- had to like from your trying to rebuy from your youth? Yeah, well, I, mean, I guess that's what Star when we Wars got into AD and D as a you know like. Oh yeah, you can I get mean, into like, AD and D like, like AD&D I started stuff. buying because at the time you know there's no fifth. This is way before fifth edition. People were people who were actively playing. We're not playing AD and D. They were using, they were like using either Pathfinder or they were yeah. on three on three point five, which was kind of like a hybrid. Or they yeah. take components of the fourth edition and kind of work it back into the third edition, or like do a lot of homebrew content like that. But uh, we were old school, and our DMs were super old school, like hardline DM guys, and we played AD and D, and so. Once I started, maybe especially the artwork, that's what gets you hooked is the art, right? Yeah. So when I got, so just I as have an, some of the old books, like I, I have a ton of them. Yeah. I mean, I, we can go through them, Ben, but like I went on like a spree because at the time, nobody, nobody was buying you get them for so cheap. They were so eBay cheap. lots of like, yeah, tons I, there was a guy and he I would buy eBay lots of yeah, stuff when I, I was buying RPG books. Yeah. I would buy like a guy's whole set of whatever. And it would be like, it would be a dungeon master's guy, player's handbook. Monster Manual 1 and 2, you know, maybe some of those, like, you remember the brown books, like the Book of Elves, Book of Dwarves, yeah. you know, Book of Ranger, Book of Fighter, Book of Monk, um, and all the modules, and all of the other weird materials that TSR is putting out. It put out a lot of so stuff. So much stuff, man. So many different box sets, so many different campaign and setting environments. And then once Forgotten Realms started coming out, then the yeah. whole thing blew up, and there were maps, and, you know, uh, like, it was crazy. So, And all that stuff was pennies yeah because like, nobody was buying it. it's i think it's more expensive now i think yeah i've with a resurgence I've been able of the fifth to edition sell some of the stuff that i bought for a little bit more than yeah i've gotten some money for it but it was so cheap because like you could buy like you just find like you know sealed copies of ravenloft yeah or whatever or you know or like you know uh just like perfect condition unused modules like, and it was cheap i would buy uh, i was buying like feverishly during that time 
So that was fun. That was all. And then so, or there was a, there's a shop in Long Beach called the Warhouse. Um, mm-hmm. mostly they focus on miniature gaming. They're kind of like a Warhammer shop now, but they still had a lot of D and D stuff. Uh, and then like you'd ask about the second edition stuff and they'd be like, Oh yeah, I think we have a box in the back. Yeah. Like go have, go have at it. And then so they would like, you know, pull out some box that they didn't even have out on the retail floor and you'd go through it. It was just like, I was like, I'll just take it all, you know? And it was like, they were not expensive. They were like $5 hardcovers and, you know, dollar modules, stuff like that. Yeah. And that was great. So I really filled up my library fast with AD and D stuff. That's cool. Well, we're getting to the point of the show where um, I ask you, what are you into now? Like, what are you watching? Um, what are you reading? Uh, let's see. Uh, I've been devouring as much weird Netflix stuff as I can. Yeah, what are you watching on did Netflix? You know, did you watch Dark, that German uh, series? No. It's awesome. It's uh, it's set in three different time periods, and it has this kind of time as a flat circle vibe. It's a, it's this mysterious, it's called dark, D-A-R-K, that's it. Um, and when you start watching it, it defaults to like an English dubbed version. So you got to toggle the, to get to the original German presentation. First of all, it's rad. German is an awesome language to hear because it's so similar. It's it's actually very, very similar. To me, it sounds super similar to English. So by the end of dark, I was feeling pretty like I could have a handle on the German language, but uh, the show is set um, sort of with this ominous uh, nuclear power plant as, a, as as its background, and some something weird, possibly from the power plant or some other mystical force, kind of rears its head every thirty three years. So the show is set like in the fifties, and then again in the eighties, and then again in present day. And all the characters carry through in each of those timelines. So the kids in the fifties are like the adults, you know, the older, the, uh, the older generation in the, in, the, like in the current day. You kind of like it. Yeah. Like every 30, like kids go missing, yeah, you know, okay. and then, but sometimes they're not really missing. They're just like floating. They're, they're being pushed into different times, timelines hmm. where like, you know, if you're, you know, a high school kid in 2018 and then you end up like in the, 80s like you don't you know like there's no record of you and so now you're like trapped in this time it's really really good there are so many interconnected characters and there's so much like mysticism that kind of holds the whole show together it's super super engaging and then um the oa did you watch the oa i've started it i didn't finish it yeah we finished they season, came out two. season two yeah they, they we finished season two season two is even crazier than season one you know, with those, like, did you get to the point where they were like, had figured out the movements? No. Yeah. So that, yeah, it's, I don't want to get, I'm not going to get spoilery with it. Uh, but I totally recommend the OA. It's, it's so weird and so unique in its vision. Like, I don't really know, I don't really know anything that's, it's really like. What's that lady's name? She, she does. I don't know her, her name offhand, but she's, I think she's the creator of yeah. the show. Yeah, because she made the this, main show writer. Cause she wrote, she made these, there's two movies that she did, I guess, that are must see if you like, if you're into that. Yeah, I, I had never seen her before. Like, this was the first time, I think I IMDb'd her when we first started watching and I was like, I don't recognize any of this stuff. Like, yeah. and it was, it was a short credit list, but, uh, yeah, that one's great. Um, let's see. We're what? Did you watch Glow? Yeah, I love Glow. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, right? Love Glow with Mark Maron. Season two was Maron is, is so funny. He's amazing. He's he, in that role. 
He's so perfect. He's it it it, it he's perfect for him. It it it's it's very much on so many levels it works. Yeah. I, I, did you watch Glow when you were? When I watched. Oh yeah, because I, I, it was on Saturday morning. Yeah, it would come on like after like American Bandstand. Or yeah, something like it would be on because they also it would there was a it was part of a wrestling block. Right. Um. And so I would watch it. Yeah, because it, it was a weird show. It was so corny. Like I, even as a kid, I was like, why do they like? They're all dancing and like like together. Like they do like yeah. that, that like that whole song. Together, we watched it because, like, at that time, it was like, "Hey, there's new wrestling content. Let's devour it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, it was just like, "Hey, there's, you know, there's more than just WWF." And so, yeah, we watched it like crazy. It wasn't very good. The wrestling wasn't fantastic. No. It was pretty bad. It's like technically not good wrestling. No, it's it's not good. I mean, uh, there was some 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 of the some of the women were skilled wrestlers but a lot of them weren't i think they were just actresses, actresses. right yeah and At they all you, the and then the, the, but that, that's what i love about the show is they actually did it they did it for real they they trained these yeah. actresses and like those actresses can all wrestle now like yeah. allison brie could probably go work an indie show yes which is that's so awesome to me yeah. and they have like Baron now has this respect for the wrestling business that I really like where he's actually <laughs> like I've, I've heard him defend wrestling to people really like just like in normal conversations where he's like he'll be talking to a normal a guest about and then like he'll, and then he'll bring up wrestling because of glow and he's like no wrestling is here's why you should like respect wrestling <laughs> and so it gave I, 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 I really appreciate what they did for the business yeah, do you have you caught that new show on Viceland, Dark Side of the Ring? I I haven't seen him yet, but I know all of I'm, they, they. I know the you know the stories. I know that all the stories. Yeah, I just watched the one with the Von Eric brothers. Oh man, that was so tragic. The Von Eric story is so it's, horrible. It's but the thing that yeah. bothers me about the Von Eric is even in that I've heard they still can't. They still tell. They still. They're still telling some tall tales. Yeah, there's a lot of. Well, there's only one Von Eric, right? Yeah, and now he's it's got just his Kevin. Sons. It's just Kevin. He lives in Hawaii, and he's got two sons. And those guys look—they're like legit. Like oh, yeah. they look like Von Erics. They're total well, wrestlers. Carrie's daughter Lacey was really good for a while. She wrestled for a while. I don't think she wrestles anymore. But you, she could—they like they're, they're, you could tell these are Von Erics. Yeah. These are these are gods. These they, are genetic those gods. Guys are uh, they're they're like yeah they're like demigods. They they like you don't just have that body from right. you decided you wanted to and eat you right at, and work and out. You like look those, at those just, guys. Carrie <sighs> Von Eric, for bless his heart, was just one of the like you just you could tell he was just one of those guys that like waltz through life based on his yeah. look. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They were gorgeous, right? <laughs> And then I watched. I, I had never seen the, or had heard the story of Bruiser Brody. Oh man, how he how yeah. he was stabbed, and that the showed a lot of footage they heard they hadn't shown before. And so. I had never seen that story. Like I was, I was, I kind of remember the character Bruiser Brody, but I don't remember there being, you know, a con like a murder controversy yeah. that took place at a. I guess that Puerto Rican wrestling league was uh, was it Puerto Rico or was it Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico. Yeah, I heard like the the. The Puerto Rico wrestling was serious. Like, oh, yeah, they yeah. were like, you know, those were where like the deadliest matches took place and the fans were the most hardcore. And it was that promoting group that like. And that, they're still around and like that guy still wrestles yeah. and that's what's crazy. Like yeah. that guy, you can go to his Facebook page and. 
Right. Yeah, that story was nuts. It was cool to see. Also, they did the Macho Man uh, story yeah. with Miss Elizabeth. That was cool. That was touching. And then that I love that Bret Hart one that they did where uh, oh, the he gets double, job. Yeah. the screw job, the double cross in yeah, Montreal. That's that's like that's one of my I I I lived that. That was like a huge moment for my in my life. Yeah, I don't remember, I think fan. I think at that point because that's ninety, right? Yeah, that's I think at that point, it was ninety all the way to ninety seven. Yeah, it was, oh, screw job was in ninety seven. I was thinking it was like ninety one. I totally got those dates wrong. Um, yeah, so by that time, like, I was already, and he was going to the WCW at that point, right? Yeah, like, that was, that was at the height of the WCW, WWF, like, wars. Feared. And so he jumped ship. But do you think that he was really double crossed, or did you think that, that the double cross was part of Vince's? I think that was just Vince. Well, I mean, I think, it, I think for, I think what happened happened. I don't think there was. You don't think Bret Hart? knew what was going to happen I don't think he knew so that was like that was a surprise because I kind of had a theory that maybe because Vince doesn't allow anything to chance right like he seems so controlling about well, the stories well that's why I think that's why he did what he did is because he doesn't want to he didn't like he had to have control over everything right and I in hindsight there's so much about that that could have happened differently yeah but if you look back at what happened, it worked out for WWF pretty well. Yeah. And WCW, not so much. Right. Which yeah. is where people think, like, well, maybe something did happen. Maybe there was something. Maybe they weren't in on it. Mm. Or you have guys like Scott Hall that still say, like, they still think it's a work. And they think it's that it was all made up. Yeah. The, the, but, but the Vice documentaries, I think that's cool that they're getting into those, that kind of stuff. It's, yeah, it's cool. That, those those are the ones. I think that's. I think I'm up to date. I think those are the ones, ones that I've seen. Yeah, I think those are the ones that they yeah. have. And then, um, uh, did you watch Love and Robots? That's that's animated. No short series. It's on Netflix. It's um, it's a series of short stories, uh, all animated, but all animated differently. You know, it's like there's some very traditional Japanese animation. You know, like pre-anime, like, you know, like 1940s Japanese animation. Then there's like some CGI stuff, um, some cell stuff, uh, and then some that just have a mix of like a lot of different styles. You know, like some, one of them is like about these, uh, these farmers that have mech suits. They're constantly fighting off these aliens. And the look of it was kind of like, uh, Spider-Man's into this, into this, the Spider-Verse, like it, where yeah, it had okay. that weird look. Cause I don't even know like how they created that that animation style but it's like wh- whatever it is like they use some of that on love and robots as well and it looks beautiful so it's an animated show yeah it's that's a series of shorts i think oh, the okay. longest one is maybe 15 minutes they're, but they're like 9 to 12 13 minute um uh shorts i think there are t- 10 or 13 of them in the series um they're all totally different stories like one of them is about or it's a reimagining of our conflict in the middle east where americans had um, like units of lichen thr- or of, of of like werewolves, essentially, like that were that were like super soldiers working for the U.S. government. You know, uh, and then there's one um, that's about like a a pit, a pit fighting. Um, it's like monsters pit fighting, but they're controlled uh, like as avatars. It's really weird. Like every single episode is totally, totally different. They're not interconnected in any way. So they're like nice little munchable, weird animated shorts. 
Cool. You reading anything? Uh, I'm not a great reader, to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm a fast consumer of tidbits and news and politics. My wife is the reader. She's devours books weekly. Um, I was never, even in school, like, I mean, I've read, you know, I read Dune and I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy and all that when I was in high school, but I was never a voracious uh, reader. Cool. I, 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 I'm more of like a, I'm more of like a visual consumer. Play video games? Not really. I, you know, I kind of yeah, tabletop games. Yeah, like um, the tabletop games. It was almost like you, you know, methadone to heroin. Yeah. Right. Like once I started playing tabletop games, I had so much more fun because of the social engagement aspect, yeah. right? Because you're you're playing with friends, right? And I don't even, I mean, nobody keeps track of, I mean, we all have winners and losers, but like nobody's like, uh, you know, bummed that they lost or, gl- you know, gloating that they won. It's just about being at the table with your friends yeah. with no TV on. Everybody is like, you know, it, it, Steven Jackson is famous board game designer said that every game is a role playing game, you know? And if you take, if you kind of approach it that way, it does feel like that. Like, like that game I said, wingspan, you know? Building an aviary is, becomes like this beautiful thing to do with your friends, you know? And everybody's talking about the bird cards, right? Everybody's talking about the habitat and, you know, how big they are and, or, or, or what their diet consists of. And there's just something about that interaction that, like, once I started it, started feeling it, I didn't really want to go back to video games because it seemed so isolationist to me afterwards, you know? Gotcha. But I mean, I totally respect. I see, like, I'm totally respectful of this new stuff that's coming out, and like, I can't keep up with it, but it looks glorious and beautiful. <laughs> uh, I would love to have, you know, a brand new Xbox or a brand new PS4 or whatever, but um, I don't have the time anymore. The last big game I did was Guitar Hero. Like, I was really good at Guitar Hero <laughs> uh, and Zelda. Like, I'm always, I'm kind of a, like a Nintendo kid. You know, I grew up with NES and SNES and N64 and the GameCube. Yeah, me too. So to me, like, I'll always have a spot in my heart for The Legend of Zelda or anything that Link is involved with. Have you seen Breath of the Wild at all? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of footage. A, a buddy of mine um, was super obsessive about it, you know, yeah. where he was like, you know, I've, I'm going to, like, I'm going to turn this game upside down, kind of obsessive. Yeah. And so he was constantly posting updates and videos, and I would watch them like I was watching TV, you know, like he was like, it was kind of like he was like my curator of that gotcha. game. You know what I mean? But I never played. But it looks beautiful. I don't have a Switch. Cool. All right. Well, I think we covered a lot. <laughs> yeah. Feel good about it? Yeah. Do you feel good? I feel good. Um, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, no. But, uh, hey, you know, at Wormwood Gaming, if you're listening, we're sitting at your prophecy. Uh, if you want to hook me up with some dice vaults, that, that would be awesome. <laughs> some die rolling trays, maybe some of that, uh, that purple wood or lace wood, that would be nice. But no, I don't have anything to promote. I'm pretty low key at this point. Um, I'm a little bit older, uh, so, you know, I just like to sip on a bourbon and, geek out on games and fantasy that's really that's my plug right on well thank you jason for being on the show thank you i appreciate it i hope i wasn't too boring no you're great <laughs> love talking about toys and 
nerdy stuff. That's what I do. That's what the show's about. So you're a perfect guest. Awesome. Thanks, man. from Comic Nerds Unite, and this is my hetero life mate, Tim. What's up, Mark? And what's up, world? Comic Nerds Unite is a comic book podcast, plain and simple. Our mission statement is bringing nerds together to talk comics. So we pick a book or graphic novel that we all read and discuss it at length. Then we talk about some of the books we read for the week. I love comics! Me too, buddy. Check us out on ComicNerdsUnite.com or on iTunes. Comic Comic Nerds Nerds Unite. Unite! This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.